Welcome to another Christian Education National Podcast. Another episode where we bring you the audio of a presentation that has and hopefully will continue to encourage Christian educators. May it be an encouragement to you and your work for His Kingdom. I am really passionate about thinking through how culture is shaping us and how the biblical story, the biblical narrative offers a much more beautiful and rich story. And I particularly like thinking about this, what I'm thinking is a a very large scale experiment that we're doing. Integrating digital technologies into the very fabric of our everyday lives. Aren't we? Very much so. There is so much of our lives that we are uh, interfacing with now through devices and technology and we are letting those devices collate our lives. And so I'm thinking about that. I like reflecting on that and, and, um, and the impacts that are uh, having on particularly our students. Two pictures just for you to think. You choose one of those pictures just as a little re- re- warm-up activity. And I want you to think about, first of all, what you see there, just what do you observe? What do you know to be true that is um, sort of triggered by that picture? And then what are you wondering What are you fearing? What are you hoping? And I want you to just have a very quick chat with the person next to you. Tell them which picture, what you see, what you know, what you wonder. And I'll I'll call you back again in about a minute or two. I know I'd love to hear some of your reflections, but in the interest of time and lunch, we'll need to kind of press on. That's a great little thinking routine you can use with classes, by the way. Uh, Choosing a picture like that and asking, "I, I see, I know, I wonder. Uh, Here's another uh, reflection activity before we get into the chewing on the meat. This is a quote I'm going to show you from this book. Um, And this book was uh, a meta-study that looked at four longitudinal studies or surveys uh, done since 1960 on American young people. So ultimately, uh, 11 million Americans. In the conclusions was this statement. If an, act, in an act, if an activity involves a screen, it's linked to less happiness and more depression. If it doesn't, particularly if it involves in-person social interaction and exercise, it's linked to more happiness and less depression. I'm just going to let that sit there for 10 seconds or so. So what I would like us to do today together, a little journey where we start to think about reimagining our practice in two ways. Reimagining our eye life, our own eye lives, but also reimagining education in the context of our eye learning, if you like. And firstly, I'd just like to give you some observations, some observations about our eye lives. And there's many I could focus on, but I'm going to pick uh, four to kind of narrow in on. And then we'll have a little bit of a chat about education. Here's the four observations. I think we're seeing an increase in informationism. I think we're seeing an increase in distractionism and narcissism and mediationism. I'm giving the talk, I can make up the words, right? (laughs) And so let's dive into these. First of all, informationism. Well, this basically is sitting and framed around this adage here, this notion that if I can be informed, I must be informed. And if I'm not being informed, well, then I'm missing out. So then this leads to, of course, FOMO, the fear of missing out. Now, initially, that that phrase was coined because people were talking about missing out on functions, on social gatherings because they weren't connected to social media. I think it extends to be much more than that now. There is a generalised anxiety about just missing out on of being in the flow of information that's going around. I want to suggest that the telegraph was probably one of the first technologies that Uh, revved up or began this whole idea of fear of missing out. So before the telegraph, you remember, the wires that went across the country of America and people at the other ends would tap out on Morse code. 
Before that, the fastest way that information could spread from one part of the country to another, from one city to another, was the fastest way it could be travelled by a person somehow. So on horseback or on steam train or running or whatever. But when the telegraph came, suddenly you have a situation where, say, um, crimes that happened overnight in LA, well, people never knew about those the next day in Detroit, but now they could. And that changed our thinking. It changed culturally. It changed our, our social imaginary. It started to frame our worldviews in the West into a mentality of, if I can be informed, I must. And so we wind forward a number of years and we get a news reporter on the television now can't simply be telling you one news story at a time. There needs to be all of it. There's just one example of that uh, kind of informationism, the idolizing of being in the flow continually of information. It, I saw, was it yesterday, day before, someone's watch flashed. I went, oh, you just get a text message. Now I get news updates come on their phone for them. So I think one of the outcomes of this informationism is we're seeing a replacement of communication with shallow information. You see the difference? And I'm, I'm going to suggest that I think that knowing, deep knowing, reflective knowing is being trivialised in the process. I must remember to tell everyone about this banana. <laughs> or I'm, I really need to tell everybody about that my, share a picture of my coffee art. People need to know that. <laughs> um, Postman back in 1986, so you're talking pre-PC, uh, he said, the telegraph may have made the country into one neighbourhood, but it was a peculiar one, populated by strangers who knew nothing but the most superficial facts about each other. And if I can paraphrase using my words and thinking it through a couple of decades, the internet may have made the world into one neighbourhood, but it's a peculiar one, populated by strangers who know nothing but the most superficial facts about each other. It's the shallowing of knowing, the shallowing of, of, of communicating. Are we seeing this? All right, so if you think that we can collect data, well, we can collect data on things together and we can build that and collect that, collate that, and we can build information. And from that information, we can develop knowledge. And ultimately, through a Christian lens on the world, we can say, well, Knowledge then, when we frame that correctly, biblically, can lead to wisdom. But what we have now, what we have woven into the very fabric of our everyday living is these devices and technologies that do the first two really, really well. What does that result in? Well, I want to suggest that's shaping us as a culture to be basically stopping at, settling for, data and information and at a, at a great cost to knowledge and wisdom. Schultz in his book, um, Habits of the High-Tech Heart, says, as the pool of information grows, our actual knowing declines. He says, reading online about the needs of the world, I love this, for instance, is never the same as personally knowing people in need. That's embodied knowing, isn't it? That's flesh and blood knowing. That's an emotive picture in many ways. And this is, this is from a poem by T.S. Eliot back in 1934. He says, where is the wisdom that we have lost in knowledge? And where is the knowledge that we have lost in information? Back in 1936. Blogging, never before have so many people with so little to say said so much. <laughs> to so few. <clears throat> Great little kind of catch-all catch of um, the shallowing of information, perhaps. What this informationism is, is an, is an idolatry of information. We're lifting information up on a pedestal. Our idols are things that we look to for security, for comfort, for a sense of well-being, for a sense of security. 
but is it actually giving? Our carrying around of these devices, our sleeping with our devices, this constant connection to the shallow flow of information, is it really giving us in terms of our welfare, our well-being, I should say, a sense of security that we think it is? Uh, in fact, I'm going to suggest um, the teachers here will go yeah, into this, I'm sure. We are losing our ability to discern between what is valuable information and what is valueless information. If we've taken all of our information and we've put it down to a, you know, uh, an inch thick, an inch, inch thick, an inch thick, we'll scrub that out of the recording, an inch thick and a mile wide, then of course we're actually going to be, our, we're losing the ability to discern which, what is good, what is healthy, what is rich information. FOMO, yes. However, some people are talking about JOMO now. Anyone? The joy of missing out, yes. Hashtag JOMO. Uh, thank you, our, our friend Lunig. JOMO, joy of missing out. Oh, the joy of missing out. When the world begins to shout and rush towards that shining thing, the latest bit of mental bling, trying to have it, see it, do it, you simply know you won't go through it. The anxious clamouring and heed, this restless, hungry thing to feed. Instead, you feel the loveliness, the pleasure of your emptiness. You spurn the treasure on the shelf in favour of your peaceful self. Without regret, without a doubt, oh, the joy of missing out. Oh, hang on, I just got a news update. <laughs> Okay, that's informationism. I, I said I was going to do a very quick overview of four of these things. Distractionism, very related, cousins maybe, to informationism. It really is, it flows from informationism, um, and it's this whole idea that we become addicted to distractions. We actually develop this uh, internal sense of I'm secure when I'm getting these distractions constantly, and I, I don't know a life outside of having constant distractions. In fact, I get anxious when I don't have those distractions. But what do these distractions lead to? I highly recommend this book. Uh, this, this talk's built on, an, on reading of a number of books in this space, but I highly recommend this one for every Christian educator. Uh, the Shallows, what, our in, what the internet is doing to our brains. And Michael Car Nicholas Carr sorry, says, uh, very convincingly in this book that what we are seeing is a shallowing of reading. We don't, we don't read reflectively like we, as reflectively and deeply as we used to, but we're losing the ability to do so as well. Uh, and there's research done on academics who it is their job to ref, uh, you know, reflectively and deeply read. They are losing their ability to do that. Uh, we are shallowing in our thinking and reflection. We are shadow, shallowing in our creativity and our ability to imagine as well. Let me show you a little video. So you're reading an article online when you get an instant message with a link to a funny photo, which of course you have to share. And now you're reading your Facebook news wall, which sends you to a video of a panda bear attacking a kid. And now you're reading Wikipedia to learn everything you can about the violent behavior of panda bears. And this is what three minutes on the internet can be like. We live like this all the time, and it has to have some kind of effect on us. The net is making us more superficial as thinkers. That is Nicholas Carr. He is the author of The Shallows, What the Internet is Doing to Our Brains. The internet, which is... It's an incredibly information-rich environment uh, that the net creates for us, and that's why we use it so much. I, I mean sounds, pictures, words, text. And what this tends to do is, is promote a sort of compulsive behavior in which we're constantly checking our smartphone, constantly glancing at our email inbox. We're kind of living in this perpetual state of distraction and interruption. Which is dangerous because... That mode of thinking crowds out the more contemplative, calmer modes of thinking. And that focused, calm thinking is actually how we learn. It's a process called memory consolidation. And that means the transfer of information from our short-term working memory to our long-term memory. And it's through moving information from your working memory to your long-term memory that you create connections between that information and everything else you know. 
So you've got this awesome life-changing piece of information in your short-term memory, but then you hear that email ding and poof, there it goes. That email takes its place and you never get a chance to learn anything, all because of one distraction. So attention is the key, and if we lose control of our attention or are constantly dividing our attention, uh, then we don't really enjoy that consolidation process. But I can hear it now. Someone out there is saying, uh, what does learning matter if all the information in the world is just a Google search away? Well... Um, that is kind of shortchanging our intellects. If that's the way you're using your mind, just kind of searching very quickly and finding information and then forgetting it very quickly, you're never building knowledge. You're simply, you're, you're kind of thinking like a computer. Which means that our very humanity is at stake. And it would be a shame if we all got assimilated because, well, humanity is pretty neat. I really believe that if you look at the great monuments of, of culture, they come from people who are able to pay attention, who control their mind. That's what allows us to think in the highest terms, and think conceptually, think critically, uh, think in some very creative ways. And it's this kind of thinking that's at risk, being eroded one cute cat video at a time. Don't get us wrong, the internet is good for lots of things, and it should be celebrated. But the best thing we can do for our minds is to find some time every day to unplug, calm down, and focus on one thing at a time. Your email and those cats will be here when you get back. I hope you caught that at the end there, that sort of um, a, a sense of bringing some balance. And I want to sort of make sure that I, I, I'm, I'm stating that as well, that I'm not saying we chuck out all technologies at this point. We need to bring some balance. We need to realise that these technologies are ur urging us away from the good life. Not a good life, the good life that God has designed for humans, the flesh and blood good life. More of that in a minute. Yes, uh, we are learning that there is a chemical in our brain, dopamine, that is triggered when we have our flash of screen, our little news notification, uh, and another like, uh, and so forth. And we are becoming, a, it's an addictive uh, chemical. Hey, wow, look at that. He's taking his first real adult steps. He's able to walk and navigate while looking down at his iPhone. Hang on, I'll get a photo. Thank you, Lunig. Distractionism and informationism. But when I said the word narcissism earlier on, I, 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 I heard people go, yes, and I saw lots of nodding. Why? Because actually narcissistic thinking by design is woven into almost all of our digital technologies, certainly our social media-based ones. By design, they are architectured around self-promotion in some way or another. Let me just share with you some research into this. Uh, University, um, San Diego University did a longitudinal study again over those years, 82 to 2006, and 16,000 students. They, they interviewed and surveyed their incoming first-year students. And they measured what's known as the narcissistic personality inventory. And what they found, to cut a long story short, is they found a 30% increase over those years in the NPI. Now, there's no arguments at all over statistical significance when you're talking about a 30% uh, increase. And the report goes on to talk about how um, uh, the devices that their, 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 their students were now carrying was one of the significant influences of that. Scientists have announced a new unit to accurately measure narcissism, the selfie per hour. Yes, I throw that in for a love. And interestingly, I think what we're seeing here is a complete turnaround happening. Because we have in integrated these technologies into the very fabric of our lives, which have narcissism, at least self-promotion, as part of their core design, we've flipped around what's virtuous character. And we're now seeing with our young, young people that it is kind of virtuous, at least online, it's virtuous to promote yourself. It's virtuous to be self-loving, um, unashamedly virtuous. I found this T-shirt. Let me focus in on it for you. 
And I love a Venn diagram. Any talk with a Venn diagram has got to be worth it. Um, <laughs> if you cross narcissism and stalking, you get Facebook. If you cross uh, stalking and ADHD, well, that's Instagram. ADHD and narcissism, that's Twitter, and I guess you combine them all together, you're talking Snapchat. Yeah. Are you a Christian girl that loves taking photos of her devotions? Do you spend hours framing the perfect picture without the payoff of people noticing how spiritual you are on the internet? Introducing Christian Girl Instagram, 101 tips and tricks to get more likes on your devotional photos. Hi, I'm John Christ with Christian Girl Instagram. Do you struggle to get likes on those devotional Instagram photos? Hashtag the struggle is real. From the best-selling author of shameless workout selfies comes Christian Girl Instagram. I would always get totes stressed out trying to decide which Bible verse to show. <laughs> Not anymore. Okay, you're always going to want to stay away from common verses like Jeremiah 29.11 or John 3.16. No matter what verse you choose, you always want to make sure you highlight multiple verses with multiple colors. Because after all, what's the point of having devotions if no one knows about it? Yeah, then we'll stop that there. <laughs> <coughs> Have copies of that book on the bookstall if you want to get... <coughs> no. And what we're also seeing with this is a, what, what I'm calling a happy bias. We only really talk openly, publicly, in a very shallow way about the good things. It's when you have the one-on-ones and the real kind of embodied discussions with people where you share, share the hard things, yeah? And if we're actually giving all of our kind of communicating, our community into the online space, we end up with this happy bias. And so it kind of looks, it looks, like, it looks like this. And what we find then is that we find that we are immersing ourselves, we are marinating ourselves in this social networking mosaic of other people's fun, cool, sexy, happy, successful, beautiful, fit, social, and the Christian version, blessed lives. Hashtag blessed. Here's in, a, in the Frog and the Fish, uh, the author asked this question. <laughs> when you are about to post or share something online, do you ask the question, how will this make my friends feel? I don't mean feel about you, because you are asking yourself that question. I mean about themselves. What will this post make your friends feel about themselves. So, psychologists are observing uh, that we are having fewer close relationships with each other. That's an obvious sort of statement in a way. We are also, at the same time, immersing ourselves in this narcissistic false reality. What happens when you combine those two things together? I think that's kind of like a perfect storm. That's a perfect storm for uh, a real troubled time with our well-being. And for our young people, our students, we have troubled time for them too. Get off my selfie stick, you egotistical narcissist. <laughs> Thank you again, Michael. All right. I'm hoping that we will have time for some questions at the end. So I'm, I am going through these fairly quickly. Uh, mediationism. Now, this is a fascinating one, and I'm sure that all of us here actually are dabbling with, us, with, this, with this ourselves. I want to ask you a question. Have you ever sent a text message when you really should have sent, or you should have made a phone call? Why? It's easier. The technology becomes a mediator. It goes between you and the, and the real, and the, the flesh and blood, and you use that, you hide behind, you, it buffers, and you think it makes it easier. This is what's happening as we increasingly weave digital technology, social networking, and so forth into the very fabric of our lives, we increasingly mediate. Not just this example, uh, many others. And this is, how, this is how it works. There's the world, people, us, life, 
and then there's us, sorry, over here, and we, we are using technology as a kind of go-between or buffer to, we think, make life easier. But what does it do? It ends up simply distancing us from life, not actually making life easier and richer. The great example here is, of course, social, social media and how we say we have friends. Uh, we have lots of friends. I have you know, 500 friends on Facebook. Uh, someone might say, I don't. I have no friends on Facebook anymore. I've got rid of all my friends, but that's another story. <laughs> Except one, because I needed to have one, uh, and so my wife's my friend. <laughs> Quick aside, I'd love to actually be a um, conscientious objector of Facebook entirely, except things like my running community do all of their, that is the only way I could get updates on where the next training session is and so forth now. It's the only way that, that's a, that's a soapbox of mine by the way, that some multinational corporation that does not have any of our interests at stake, only profit of the shareholders and Mr. Mark, uh, at the, that I have to, anyway, back <laughs> off soapbox. Uh, so Facebook, yes, we have, we have this technology that mediates between us and, and friendship. Uh, Powers, in his uh, book, helpfully says, he's, he's ironically talking about the fact that when he, his family used to gather at the lounge room around the television after dinner, he says now, well, why not flee the few of the living room for the many of the screen where all relationships are flattened into one user-friendly mosaic, a human collage, that's endlessly clickable and never demands our full attention. See, because the social media has become a buffer, a techno go-between, and it just makes it all a little bit more removed, and we think, therefore, better. But what about our flesh and blood well-being? So as we kind of move along this journey we're on of increasing our techno-buffering, what I suggest that we are seeing is uh, an increasing dependency on mediation. And if, if you are you know, dealing with uh, digital natives who are born into a world where all they know is this sort of techno-mediation, they are highly dependent upon it. So if you say to a bunch of Year 9 students, we're going to go on a school camp for 10 days, you know, an excursion, and, and you know what? Not only is there no uh, reception, you can't even, you're not allowed to bring any of your devices. Horror. Blood drains out of their face. Anxious. They're not just anxious because of FOMO, they are, but not just that. It's because they subconsciously know that that will force me to have to relate to others without a buffer. That's harder. That's confronting. But that's real. I think we're also seeing relational laziness, therefore, flow from that. Uh, we're seeing distancing effects happening, and we're seeing an obsession with this mediated self-identity. There's research done that suggests that some young people are spending more of their emotional energy, emotional resources, massaging and thinking about their online presentation of themselves than they do their walking around real-life presentation of themselves. More, more emotional energy on that. So think about that, that young girl in your class. You are trying to engage with them, but you're only getting perhaps what's left over after they've been massaging their online presentation. Many of us are more concerned uh, with who we are in a mediated context than who we are before those who live in the same neighbourhood or who attend the same church, says Tim Shillies. Facebook, a post a day, keeps reality at bay. <laughs> or does it? It keeps, it, it brings a false reality into the very fabric of your life, though. This is another meme that some people are talking about. That's that sense that we need to actually disconnect to connect, really. Let me show you this film. Okay, guys, time for dinner. <laughs> Set the table. 
Yes, a, a little corny in a way, but you know that advertisers and marketers, they just read worldview or social imaginaries, as David Smith said, uh, really well. Sorry, it was Steve McAlpine talking about social imaginaries. And they use that to tap into how to sell product. And so they're actually tapping into something quite profound here. I'm switching everything over to the internet. <sighs> my phone, my bills, my TV, my human contact. Looney wrote this poem, which I think is really quite profound. Him for him. Greater love hath no man than this, that he laid down his phone for his friend, and go to his side to care and abide, to hold and support and to mend. I'd actually like us to say this together. Let's see if we can give that a shot. Are you ready? Greater love hath a man known that he laid down his phone for his friend and go to his side to care and abide, to hold and support and to mend. Now that we've got the meter and the feel and the rhythm of the poem under our belts, let's say it again and you can be not thinking about those things. Greater love hath no man than this, that he laid down his phone for his friend, and go to his side to care and abide, to hold and support and to mend. Amen. Why is mediationism a problem? I think because God has designed us to be flesh and blood. And that doesn't mean, again, that technology is bad, evil, wrong, and so forth. But we need to be discerning about whether it may be pulling us away from the goodness of the flesh and blood. Remember this. If an activity involves a screen, it's linked to less happiness and more depression. If it doesn't, particularly if it involves in-person, social interaction and exercise, it links to more happiness and less depression results of a meta-study of 16,000 young people. Yes, flesh and blood and stuff. God has made this world. He has made flesh. He's designed it, made it, this flesh and blood world with, with, with stuff which includes chairs and all sorts of things. And in his love for this world, he has actually come into this world. He has become stuff. He has become flesh and blood. And he loves this world so much that he's actually sacrificed flesh and blood for this world, for this creation. All right, so a little summary. We have said that uh, we are seeing a trend towards informationism, distractionism, narcissism, and mediationism. Now, I could have picked a number of other things as well. I could have talked about empathy. A great book by Sherry Turkle, uh, Reclaiming Conversation. She puts a great case forward for suggesting that we learn empathy for other people. We learn that in conversation, in real life conversations with people. That is the classroom for empathy. So if we are increasingly moving to online communicating, if our young people are doing that, then where is the opportunity for empathy training? Uh, loneliness, in the statistics about loneliness uh, in the Western world is, are quite staggering. Uh, Howard Gardner, the, the original uh, presenter of the multiple intelligence and so forth, he's written a book called, I can remember the name of it, he talks about we are, we are approaching the, our technologies like life is a super app. It's creating a social imaginary such that life is a super app and, and we think about uh, in our life in terms of efficiency and productivity uh, and you know, all, all of those different sort of shaping forces that uh, you would find in, in the notion of an app. The bias bubble, we could, we could tease that one out as well. We like, online, we like what we like. And then the algorithms in these places actually then continue to shut that closer and closer and closer in so we get filtered into this little bubble. Uh, epistemology. We, we are being shaped by our technologies. Just think of Wikipedia, for example, to think that truth comes by consensus. 
not by some sort of ultimate authority uh, outside of the system. Uh, and generational wisdom, I think it was Steve McAlpine yesterday mentioned this, that you know, we don't need grandparents anymore and elders because we can, we've got Google. And we could have explored and others as well. But now, I'd like us to just sort of focus our attention a little bit on education then. Three thoughts I want to give you. One response would be something like this, and uh, this happened last month. Victorians, state schools decided, right, we want to <coughs> outlaw uh, mobile phones. Well, you know, from school gate to school gate, opening to closing times, no mobile phones. That's one response. And may maybe there is some merit in that. I'm not sort of passing any judgment either way. But I think we need to dig a little deeper than this. I'm going to suggest that three things that I think we need to move in our Christian schools, we need to move from an instrumentalism to a determinism. Oh, I'm going to tease that out a little minute. And I'm going to suggest that I think we need to explicitly teach somewhere in the curriculum somehow some of the things that I've been talking about. And thirdly, I want us to remember, I think we need to be... I'm, I'm, I'm going to sort of make a call for Christian schools to keep remembering flesh and blood in our practices. So as we move from instrumentalism to determinism, okay? So at the top there, I've got instrumentalism and then two types of determinism. Instrumentalism is simply this. It's that thinking that says, well, technology, it's just a tool. It's just a piece of equipment, in a sense, and I can choose to use it well or I can choose to use it poorly. Right? That's a straight up and down instrumentalist view. And I think we often stop there perhaps in our Christian schools at times. We've just got to make sure that we use it in godly ways. What I want to suggest, and this is ushering us into determinism, is that even while we are using it well, even while we are using it in godly ways, the technology is still shaping us by its very design. So that leads us to de determinism. Uh, this is the sense, or I'm going to call this one passive de technological determinism. Oh, well, it's shaping us, but oh, well, what can you do about that? This is, this is where my mum sits. She'll sort of read something about technology and go, look what they've done now. I'm not really quite sure who they is, but look what they've done now. Oh, well, that's going to shape us like this. What can I do? De discerning technological determinism says, well, actually, yes, it's going to have a shaping impact on us and we understand that because of the fall, that shaping is not always going to be great and helpful and healthy and good for our well-being. So we need to be discerning because we know there's another story that we need to see this through and understand it within. Uh, technological instrumentalism, back to uh, the writer of The Shallows, the book you should read as a Christian educator. Instrumentalism is the most widely held view of technology, not least because it is, it is the view we would prefer to be true. The idea that we are somehow controlled by our tools is an anathema to most people. But we are controlled by our tools. Marshall McLuhan, a famous media kind of uh, commentator from the 60s, he said this about instrumentalism. He says, our conventional response to all media, namely that it is how they are used that counts, is the, t is the numb stance of the technological idiot. For the content of a medium is just the juicy piece of meat carried by the burglar to distract the watchdog of the mind. The medium is shaping you independent of its message. So that leads us to technological determinism. Colkin very famously said, and I love this, it's a great catch-all for this position. We become what we behold. We shape our tools and thereafter, our tools shape us. We have shaped social networking and thereafter, our tools shape us. And I've made this point already. It's an important one. I think we need to be opening this up with our students, age appropriately, though, although I wonder, even at a young age, whether it's worthwhile unfolding for them that technology shapes us, particularly these digital technologies that we've woven into the very fabric of our lives. 
even when we use them well. And again, determinism and the fall. Yes, we acknowledge that technologies are the result of humans who have been made in God's image, but they're also the result of humans who have the brokenness of the fall. And they have all sorts of assumptions and worldviews and uh, distortions woven into them because of that. So therefore, our call for determinism. Uh, McLuhan actually says the effect of technology, the effects of technology do not occur at the level of opinions or concepts. They're much deeper. Rather, they alter the patterns of perception steadily and without any resistance. Except for discerning Christians. And uh, Romans 12 here comes to mind. The patterns of the world. And, our, and, and Paul's uh, call on us to be transformed by the renewing of our mind, uh, not the pattern of this world. Because I, as I suggested before, these, the distortions woven into these technologies are ushering, whispering, urging us away from the good life. The good life where God is sovereign, where God is good. The good life where we understand that we are broken, but Jesus is redeeming. Uh, Jesus has redeemed us and is redeeming and all for the good of the coming kingdom where God will... Re- that's, that's the good life. That's how we understand that. Uh, hence, I suggest, I urge a discerning determinism. A realisation that there is a shaping influence even when we use it well. Okay. But some of you might say, be thinking, yeah, but Chris, all technologies do this, don't they? All technologies have got this uh, determinism uh, and we need to be discerning. And perhaps that's true. You think of the impact of the printing press. You think of the impact of the, um, the automobile. They've changed our societies. They've changed our cultures. They've changed our worldviews. The electric light bulb, for instance, yes. But think about what we have done with this experiment in terms of taking our digital technologies and woven them so intimately into the very fabric of our everyday living and lives and relating and communicating. And I just want to, I guess I would argue that that impact then is something, and it's happened very fast, much faster than the impact of the automobile, for instance. I am not your device, you are my device. So this is now my call uh, to encourage you to be thinking about ways that you can explicitly teach this in the curriculum somewhere. I'm thinking that it's not just enough to have the the cross-curricular ICT part of the Australian curriculum and... uh, because you know, as you increasingly flip your classrooms and integrate learning management systems to run parallel to your learning, and you you, you know, bring gamification in, and you have BYOD, you know, one-on-one devices in your classes, and, and it, while that's all happening, I want to say that it's an opportunity there to actually teach explicitly some of this so that even little ones are realising some of the shaping effects. It's not to be pharisaical about it. Uh, Rule-making, just ban all mobile phones, though I'm going to say again, I think that may actually be possibly a healthy thing. But we need to think more deeply than that and weave that into our curriculum. So yes, the Australian curriculum, this is taken from the Australian curriculum, you do have a great deal of freedom here, I see. Uh, this the ICT capability here. You've got this applying social eth- and ethical protocols and practices when using ICT. I reckon that's your window. That's your window in whatever age level to start weaving in these notions. What they say is um, you've got the ability to uh, be applying social and ethical protocols and practices when using ICT. So three essential questions, I think, come to mind here. 
uh, about uh, the ICT and, and education. First one, are you as teachers, first, because it starts with you. Christian education always starts actually with the teacher. Biblical worldview always starts with the teacher. Faithful presence always starts with the teacher. Redeemed practices always have to start with the teacher. So, my question to you then, does your eye life help you to be the person, the servant that you hope to be? Is it helping or hindering? Is your eye life actually making you more happy? Secure, wise, healthy, faithful, is it helping you to be more human? flesh and blood? And is your eye life helping or hindering you? <laughs> what have I done? Oh, right, 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 right. Is your eye life helping you or hindering you serving God and others? That's a nice irony, isn't it? <laughs> and that leads me to think of some, uh, ten sub-questions. Um, I normally use these sub-questions if I was to talk to a bunch of uh, young people. But I actually thought, I'm going to, if time, I'd actually like to ask, uh, share these questions with you as well. So these little sub-questions go like this, and they're really kind of a self-reflection. One, does my iLife connection to social networking, does it ever make me anxious? I was just talking to Dave. Dave's the man who works for the conference centre here who loaded my PowerPoint on back in the other room. I uh, was talking to him this morning and he was flicking through my PowerPoint just to check that everything was working. And he said to me, you know what? About two years ago, I actually deleted all my social networking. I left, I, I, and he says, you know, this is his phrase, my, my, I've been much happier and I've had a better well-being ever since. That was it, I just chucked that one in. I found that was interesting. Two, how important is it for me to stay connected and up to date? And why? If the answer is yes, then why? Three, can a mass of friends in my eye life actually detract me from feeling connected in real life? Can that happen? Doesn't make sense, does it? Perhaps to a digital native that might not make sense. But it's a good question to ask, for them to be asking themselves. Uh, number four, um, does my eye life sometimes divert me away from who I really want to be? Who I deep down want to be? Is it helping me there? Number five, is my eye life helping me to live well? Number six, am I different in my eye life than I am in real life? And if so, why? Is my eye life actually making me as happy as I think it is? Number eight, does my eye life help or hinder me in my desire to serve God and relax in His grace? And number nine, is my eye life contributing positively to my overall well-being? And number ten, I want to finish with, has my eye life become an idol that I look to for security, hope, comfort, purpose, and so on? Because as Tim Keller says, idolatry is when we take a good thing and we make it an ultimate thing. And my third thing, remember I said three things about education? My third one is remember flesh and blood. In terms of your practices, your integration of technology into your classrooms, remember flesh and blood. Shape your practices in such a way uh, that those drawing away from flesh and blood effects are going to be minimised. Think creatively about that. Talk to your colleagues about how you're going to be doing that, even though you might have a one-to-one -one 
laptop program. David Smith gave one particular example here and he said, okay, put three people around one PC to do a task and you'll stop the online shopping. Or in school's context, the social networking. No, I'm not talking about Twitter. I literally want you to follow me. Thank you. I, would, I think we do have like five minutes for some we questions. Do. Let's put our hands together and just thank Chris at this point.